Macworld Podcast number 114, the great googly moogly Apple's been busy edition for February 13th, 2008, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Bream. As I hinted in the opening, Apple has been incredibly busy since we last met. Let me count the ways. First, it releases iPhone and iPod Touch models with greater capacity, 16 and 32 gigabytes respectively. Then on Monday of this week, it coughs up the Mac OS 10.10.5.2 update. On Tuesday, it released Aperture 2.0 as well as the Apple TV 2.0 software update. And scattered in between these events were minor fixes for iLife and QuickTime. During Macworld Expo, Steve Jobs listed a bunch of things Apple had done in the first two weeks of this year and then went on to casually imply that we ain't seen nothing yet, and I guess he wasn't kidding. During the next few minutes, our job is to cover these events. In order to do so, I'll speak with frequent Macworld contributor Ben Long about the import of Aperture 2.0. I'll follow up with a conversation with Macworld senior editor Rob Griffiths, in which Rob and I talk about the 10.5.2 update and what it brings to the table. And I'll wrap up by offering my views on subjects I've recently covered for Macworld, specifically the 32-gigabyte iPod and Take 2 of the Apple TV. Other news and commentary? Forget about it. We're about to go in-depth on the most intriguing topics of the past two weeks. And now let's get started. We'll do that with my interview with Ben Long. I'm joined by Macworld contributor, professional photographer, book author, and bon vivant Ben Long to talk about the just-released Aperture 2.0, which is Apple's photo editing and cataloging application. Thanks for returning for the second podcast in a row, Ben. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be back. And it's great to have you back. So, okay, let's cut right to the chase. Aperture 2.0 came out. What are some of the highlights? Well, the main highlight that most people are going to notice when they first open the application is that Apple has revamped the interface, where they had merely vamped it before, now they've revamped it, and it's much better. Um, All of those inspector palettes and things that used to be over there on the right-hand side of the screen have all been combined and put into one tabbed inspector that sits on the left-hand side of the screen. Now, this may not seem like a huge change, um, but once you start using the program, it's, it's pretty profound. There's some keyboard shortcuts that let you navigate uh, the three inspectors that you spend the most time in. You can navigate those very easily. And there's also kind of a, a less tangible, somewhat ephemeral change. Having the right side of the screen open is somehow just less claustrophobic than it used to be. So that's, that's the main change that people are going to see right off the bat. Uh, the other major changes are the addition of some additional image adjustment tools, an entirely new RAW converter, and a lot of other tweaks here and there throughout the program. Okay. So as a pro photographer, which are the ones that are going to be most useful to you? Which, which are the, the new features? Yeah. Uh, well, again, just the, the interface change is great no matter who you are. It makes the program faster to use, easier to use. Uh, as a pro photographer, the, there, there are a few things that are going to really kick in and be helpful. There are some performance improvements throughout the program. There's a new uh, quick preview feature, which means... The program can blast previews up to the, the screen much faster than it used to. Uh, that's a huge thing for photographers that are processing lots and lots of images, especially lots of high-res images. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The new raw converter is going to have great appeal both for the change in image quality and the fact that it opens up some new adjustment tools such as a recovery slider for doing highlight recovery of raw images and a few other goodies, some moiré correction and some other things like that. So those are going to be big. A somewhat hidden feature that's really going to impact pro photographers is the fact that Aperture can now export in the background. So it used to be you come back from your shoot, you'd make your selects, you'd do your edits, you'd do all that stuff in one place, which is which is where Aperture really excels. you do all your organization and everything. When you got all your images ready to deliver to the client, you would have to sit through this output process, which could take a long time, and it was mobile. It tied up Aperture, which means you couldn't work on anything else. Now, that's been moved into the background, so that's actually a huge productivity gain for the busy photographer because they can start spitting out one project and go work on another. Okay, and I also understand they offer tethered shooting now? The tethered shooting control is great um, because it's built into Aperture, which is really nice. You don't have to go through this AppleScript hack that you used to have to go through. In previous versions of Aperture, the way you did tethered shooting was you used the tethered software that came with your camera and some really cool automator uh, stuff that used hot folders and some other stuff so that your tethered software wrote your images out into a folder. This automator action watched that folder, and when it saw an image appear there, it imported it into Aperture for you. With the tethered palette, you don't need that anymore, which is great. However, the tethered controls that are built into Aperture just give you shutter button control. They don't give you any uh, exposure control, which some of the tethered software that comes with your camera, some of those programs do give you control over shutter speed and aperture, and they give you intervalometers and other stuff that's cool. If you still need those features, um, we, you might still need to use the older kind of AppleScript-based thing, and I haven't had a chance yet to look and see if that works with Aperture 2.0. If not, hopefully it'll be updated. Okay, I think we, sh- we should probably back up for a second and explain what tethered shooting is for people who don't know. Uh, the idea with tethered shooting is you plug your camera into your computer with a USB or FireWire cable, just as if you were going to transfer images. But uh, now, whenever you take a picture, it's automatically downloaded to Aperture right away. The advantage, obviously, if you're walking around the street shooting, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you're in a studio shooting uh, product shots or models or things like that, um, basically you've got your giant cinema display as a viewfinder for your camera. It's not a live thing, but you can take a picture and immediately see it real big on your screen, and if you want to immediately apply some adjustments, see if that's the image you need. If not, you can go back and take another shot right away. It's a very speedy workflow thing because you're not having to shoot, take the card out of your camera, copy it over, import it into Aperture, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay, so when we last met, we were commenting about Aperture's raw support on new Canon and Nikon cameras, specifically that it was missing. Uh, now, we learned from macOS 10.10.5.2 that raw support comes with the OS rather than an application like Aperture. Now, Adobe doesn't do things this way, but rather it pumps raw support into its applications without waiting for Apple to catch up. Does the scheme of updating raw in the Mac OS make sense to you? Well, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm glad you brought this up. This is a huge thing that uh, Aperture 2.0 does provide raw support now for a bunch of new cameras, including the Nikon D300 and the Canon G9, both of which are very, very hot cameras right now, um, as well as a bunch of other cameras, and those are all listed on Apple's website. And you're right. In this case, the raw support came in the form of an OS update. Now, in the past, that, that's been problematic, or, or even in this last thread, that's been problematic because you have to wait for the OS update, which means the Aperture engineers that are writing camera updates can't necessarily release them because maybe, you know, they're waiting on guys to finish, you know, some completely other part of the OS that's going to be put in this, in this thing. Sometime last year, Apple released 
specifically a raw camera update, which showed up in software updates. Mm-hmm. So in the past, they have had a mechanism for just putting out camera updates. They could, of course, also just roll them into Aperture and release them as Aperture updates. However, they want to release them at the OS level. This is, this is something that Adobe doesn't have to worry about. Adobe releases a camera update, and it's for Adobe Camera Raw, which is what's in Photoshop, Photoshop Elements, and Lightroom. Apple releases a raw update, and it needs to go in at the OS level so that it shows up in Aperture, iPhoto, the Finder, and all the other places that are accessing the OS level raw converter. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of the just kind of the predicament that Apple's in is they've got an OS level converter, which is great because it means lots of other people can tap into it. It's a drag because it means that you know that it's tricky to figure out where to release the OS updates. Hopefully in the future, Apple will continue to do this camera update thing that they did at some point last year because that that unbinds them from the rest of the OS update process. Yeah. Well, I know that Joe Shore, who's the product manager for Aperture, commented that Apple is well aware that people want support for new cameras as soon as they can get it and that Apple is going to make you know efforts to do that sort of thing. It's great that they're aware of it because it is definitely a problem. Adobe's been very good about New cameras come out, and in some cases, you know, they've got they've got raw converters released within a month. Yeah, uh, Apple's got to get faster than they had this last time. Right. Okay. So you see what Apple offers at Aperture 2.0. Do you see any glaring emissions features that really should be in the application but aren't yet? Well, that's a tough call to make in a in a very general sense because there are lots of different people doing lots of different kinds of photography, and for some of them, some tools are going to be more appropriate than others. Um, if you are, Aperture is still uh, way ahead of everybody else in terms of organization, working through a whole bunch of images to find the ones you like, getting them rated, getting them keyworded, getting them organized, maintaining over the long haul a library that's easily searchable um, and that provides uh, you know easy access to finding your files and getting them spat out as web pages and whatnot. Aperture, is, that's still really its strength. Mm-hmm. Um, its weakness is still image editing. They've added some nice new tools, but like Lightroom, you still do not have any kind of selective editing. I can't say I want to brighten up just this part of an image. I can't make a selection and adjust the color in just that selection. There are no masking tools. There's no selective editing. Lightroom faces the same problem. Lightroom is still a little bit stronger in terms of its editing tools. It's got some extra things that Aperture doesn't have. Um, for a lot of users, this just isn't going to matter. If you're a wedding shooter you or an event shooter, you tend to not make lots of little tweaks to your images. On the other hand, if you're a landscape shooter, you might be really spending a lot of time in Photoshop. Uh, you might be shooting panoramas that you need to stitch. You might be shooting high dynamic range images that need to be merged. Um, those are the areas where you still don't have... you still got a complicated workflow if you're working with Aperture. Right. Or um, Lightroom for that matter. Yeah, well, I was, I did want to talk a little bit about Lightroom versus Aperture now. Uh, last time we talked, we, we talked about the strengths and weaknesses of each program. Has this changed things dramatically, the, the update to Aperture 2? Uh, no, I, I, I think that Aperture is still, it's still definitely got the lead in terms of organization, and Lightroom still got the lead in terms of image editing. Okay. So what about it as an update? Does it make, I mean, is it a no-brainer for people who are using the older version of Aperture to update to the new one? Absolutely a no-brainer. Obviously, if you've got a newer camera that wasn't supported in the old one, you, you're going to update just to get camera support. Um, the new features or the new interface, the, the better performance, those two things right there are worth it. If you're a studio shooter, you're going to want to do it for the tethered shooting. So, yeah, there are, there are a lot of reasons. 
Excellent. Well, it sounds like uh, I need to run off now and uh, get to my local Apple store and upgrade to Aperture 2.0. Well, you've got a D300. You need to, yeah. Yeah, I do. And uh, and my D300 has been crying out for it, so uh, it's very happy, and I am too. Thanks very much, Ben, for joining me, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Chris. Next up, Rob Griffiths and I mull over the Mac OS X 10.5.2 update. Before we do, however, a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of digital spoken word entertainment, offering over 40,000 audiobooks for your iPod. Get a free audiobook download when you try the service at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Check out great titles like I Was or The Second Coming of Steve Jobs with your free audiobook credit. This is a special offer for Macworld podcast listeners, so to get your free audiobook, visit www audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. And now Rob Griffiths on the latest Leopard update. This week, Apple released the OS 10 10.5.2 update, an update that not only addresses elements of Leopard's interface that some found irksome, but offers a significant number of under-the-hood fixes as well. I'm joined by Macworld senior editor and macOS 10 hints guru Rob Griffiths to talk about some of the changes wrought by the update. Thanks for joining me, Rob. You're welcome, Chris. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. So let's start off with the obvious stuff. What interface changes has 10.5.2 brought to us? Well, probably the first and most visible one uh, is the ability to turn off the translucent menu bar, which is uh, you can find in your uh, desktop area of the system preferences panel. Mm -hmm. And the translucency was this uh, feature that Apple seemed to love, whereby you could see your desktop image through your menu bar. And a lot of us never understood why this was a benefit. And uh, as I recall, we, uh, we even brought it up during a press briefing, and the answer was sort of, well, doesn't it look great? And... Uh, <laughs> I don't remember agreeing with them, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on which desktop pattern you have behind it. Some of exactly. them are not bad, and others are mm, not so good. Yeah, the, uh, but the good news is it's now optional, and you can easily disable it with a tick of a checkbox. And then uh, the other thing they did along with that, which uh, Apple described as a slight change, um, was they reduced the translucency in the menus themselves. So before, you could see a lot of the text and imagery in the windows behind your menus, and now... Uh, you can still sort of tell there might be something there, but it's much closer to what 10.4 had than what 10.5 originally shipped with. And for me, that's actually probably the, the greatest thing I've seen in 10.5.2 yet is uh, that I no longer have to try to worry about which level of the screen to focus on mm -hmm. when I'm trying to read a menu. Yeah, right. Well, and one thing, and, and this is sort of inside baseball for us, but we take a lot of screenshots for, you know, stuff we write for the web or for the magazine. And I've noticed that those taking menu screenshots now is still a problem because you've got sort of this fuzz in the background. And, and I'm still not quite sure how to take a clean one. Yeah, the only way I've found to do it is you, you sort of have to put a white backdrop there, which is sometimes not practical, depending on which application you're running. So. Right. It's still not ideal for us authors, but it's much nicer to look at than it used to be. Uh, and then the other biggie, obviously, was that uh, Apple relented and gave us back the ability to have hierarchical folders in our dock. And, um, you know, I don't know if we should give Dan Frakes all the credit, but they pr pretty much took an idea he put forth in one of his articles and ex implemented it exactly as he wrote it up. So a folder in the dock can either be a stack or a hierarchical folder. 
And if it's a stack, you can also say that you would like it to keep the icon of the folder instead of changing every time you uh, add something, for instance, to your downloads folder. So Mm -hmm. I am uh, thrilled that they did that. I I used hierarchical folders. I had three that I kept in my dock all the time. And as much as I tried, I really couldn't get used to stacks with the exception of I did have a, uh, I had a stack for servers I connect to and I had a stack for downloads, but uh, I missed the ability to drill down into my hard drive directly from a folder in the dock. And now I have uh, the best of both worlds. Yeah, I agree. It's, and it's nice that, you do have those options now instead of just saying, okay, fine, we're going to go back to the way it was. You've got this hybrid view now. So if you want a list, you can have it. If you want a fan or a grid, you can have that as well. Yeah, and the other thing uh, they did is we actually have more functionality in the hierarchical folders now because the sort options that exist for stacks also work on hierarchical folders. So you can view your pop-up folder sorted by date or by name or any of the other options that are available for sorting stacks. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So what are some of the more important under the hood changes? Um, well, they did a lot of work on things that you may not even have known had issues, but I know I noticed, um, you know, if you go through their release notes, they did a lot of work on the finder. There were some situations where the finder would unexpectedly quit. I had that happen to me. Um, if you were like looking at a folder in, in column view, all of a sudden the finder just relaunched. It's like, what happened? Yeah. Um, and I haven't had that happen since I upgraded. So that was kind of nice. And there were some permissions, things that were odd. Um, mail got a lot of work behind the scenes on RSS and data detectors, which I love are, are now supposedly more accurate at detecting data. Um, I mean, it's a huge list of changes, and I think it was a, a what, 180 megabyte download, so yeah. this is a substantial upgrade, and I, what I love about it is the fact that, it, you know, Apple releases it, and it's just a point one you know, upgrade on our systems, and yet we gained functionality in a lot of areas, mm-hmm. um, some of which Apple doesn't even, as usual, doesn't bother to tell us about. They also added, um, you know, when the MacBook Air came out, they had this ability for the Air to share another Mac's uh, CD or DVD drive, yeah. and they've now extended that across any Mac, theoretically. And I say theoretically because in, in my testing, I haven't been able to make it do anything. Yeah. But uh, our colleague Dan Frakes the other day, I was chatting with him. And he said, oh, yeah, it works just like it should. I put a disk in and it showed up on the other machine. So I'm not quite sure if it's user error on my end or something between my two machines. But, um, you know, it could be useful for times when you just want to have another drive in one of your machines and, or you don't want to move a physical, you know, uh, disk from one machine to another. If it's shareable and it's working, uh, you can just click a couple buttons in the finder and there it is. Yeah, so, albeit slowly. Yeah, <laughs> slowly. Um and I guess a friend uses parental controls, and he had been complaining that it crashed on him quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things they've listed in here is that the stability when opening parental controls is now improved. Um, so that's a good sign because he was uh, lamenting the fact that although the features of parental controls in 10.5 are really nice, he could rarely get there because it continually crashed. Yeah. Well, as I read through the release note, it seems to me that other than the welcome cosmetic changes, much of this update fixes things that were broken in the first two iterations of Leopard, like Back to My Mac, for example, or parental controls and widgets. Does this release make Leopard a better bet for those who are concerned about these initial bugs? I, I do think it does, and I think it's a sign that, and we kind of commented on this, that um, 10.5, when it first shipped, really had this feeling of, I mean, it was certainly a complete OS and very usable, but compared to the other major releases, I found it to be a little less stable, a little um, little glaring things like, well, one of them, a time machine. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other things they've added now is this nice time machine icon in the menu bar, so you can actually see what this very important part of your 
machine is doing. Uh, you can see when backups are running. You can see when they're last run. Uh, in 10.5, you had to like go either into the Time Machine System Preferences panel or onto the disk itself in the Finder to figure out what was going on with it. So you know, it's little things like that where it's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe we should have had this at the release, but they clearly had a deadline and they clearly wanted to ship, and uh, decisions were made. So yeah, you know, for those who have waited, I think 10.5.2 is is definitely worth waiting for, and it certainly was resolved probably you know at least three of my four major complaints with 10.5 having to deal with translucency time machine and stacks right um you know the one thing i was hoping they would fix but they didn't is uh and i don't know if it's just me but in spotlight searches in the finder one of the things that they took away from 10.4 to 10.5 was the ability to show different columns in your search results Mm -hmm. so in 10.5 all we can see are name kind and date modified which means if you run a search on file size and you want to find like all the big files on your hard drive um you can't actually see how large those files are that you have found because you can't show the size column right right in the search results and i thought for sure that would be one of the things that was addressed in this fairly major update but sadly i still have to uh, switch over to hudaspot which is my current tool of choice because it will let you see the size of the items you actually find so I got my fingers crossed for 10.5.3, I guess, that we should be able to use a, a, make a usable finder search for something that has anything other than name, kind, or date-modified information. Right. Well, I remember when we had our briefing with Apple the day before Leopard was released, you brought that up, and they, you know, their reaction was sort of like, huh. Yeah, it was like, oh, that probably should work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this isn't very useful in its current. Yeah, so yeah. I agree. I thought, okay, this time they're going to get it, and I and I looked and I went, oh no, okay, not not <laughs> yet. So, yeah. are there any other kind of important issues that haven't been resolved with this update? Um, not that I've run into yet. Um, I heard uh, one of the things that purportedly fixes it, and this actually had happened to me during Expo Week, um, there's a situation where sometimes the setup ass- assistant would unexpectedly appear even when your machine was running normally. Mm-hmm. You'd log in and setup assistant would appear, and you'd log out, and you'd log in, and it would show up again. And they've listed that as fixed, but on one of the mailing lists I'm on, um, someone has said they've already seen reports of, well, it's not really fixed because it's happened to someone again on 10.5.2. Uh, I haven't seen it. I only saw it that one time, but it was certainly um, somewhat surprising when it happened. Yeah, I have to say I updated my uh, my old Mac, uh, my old PowerBook, uh, the G4 PowerBook, and after updating it, I got Setup Assistant. Uh, first time I, re- I ran it, I went, huh, I thought this was supposed to be fixed. But I haven't <laughs> seen it since, so maybe it's just the first time you update this thing and it wants to confirm your Apple ID or something, and then uh, quitting it was no problem. Once I did that, it, it left me alone. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in general this is probably you know it's it's a it's a um, sort of a dual edge what's it called a two edge knife or whatever because on the one hand this is one of the better the updates they've released on the other hand they really shouldn't have had to release an update with these kind of fixes in it if they would have taken their time with the original release of ten five you know a lot of these bugs probably shouldn't have made it into a release version of the product but you know I'm glad that they've acted on them in a fairly timely manner I mean we're only what uh, five six months after the release date. So yeah, well, I, I recall when this first came out, we we sat around and said, "Huh, this seems a little rushed," you know. And and, yep. and OS releases often do, but this one more than anyone I recall, you know, since early early on, seemed really rushed. That there was a bunch of stuff like Apple was ripping out features that they demonstrated, and things just weren't working properly. Yeah, and they you know they've definitely addressed a lot of that. The um... Uh, the overall stability seems a little better. I mean, I, I, obviously we've only been running it 
the official release now for a couple of days or a day or so, but uh, I haven't had any crashes, uh, even in an application crash since I've upgraded, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a, I had a program in 10.5.1 that I could use that would um, pretty consistently crash within 10 or 15 minutes of running, and I ran it yesterday for about an hour, and it ran the whole time. So I, I do think this is a good upgrade. I would seriously, you know, obviously if you're running a 10.5, it, it's, you should get this. Um, and if you've been holding off on getting 10.5, I think this is probably a good time to step in. Um, you know, a lot of the major things have been addressed, the new features have been added, and a lot of the most annoying bugs have been squashed. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, are are there any reasons for people who are still using Tiger to continue to use it and not jump up to Leopard at this point? You know, the the only thing I can think of is that there there are still applications and some plugins for applications that don't work on ten five. Mm-hmm. And if one of those applications or plugins is a critical item in your workflow, obviously you're going to be stuck. Uh, but if you've just been hanging off because of that, well, it's new and I want to wait and see what kind of bugs crop up. Um, you know, I think we're past that point now. Uh, it is now a, a, a very usable, solid release with a ton of really cool features. And once you've gotten used to using some of them, when you go back and use a 10.4 machine, it's like, oh, now there aren't data detectors in mail. You know, yeah. oh, I can't, I can't just do share my screen and do tech support for people. Um, you know, it's like, oh, how do we have to do that? You got to set up a VNC server and uh-huh. I got to give you a router pass and, uh, you know, the ability for me, especially because I'm tech support for the family to be able to just say, you know, share a screen with father and uh, then show him exactly what needs to be done and talk to him on the microphone uh, without having to worry about router settings or right. passwords. It's wonderful. Yeah, and I feel the same way about Quick Look. I move over to a Tiger yes. machine and I'm constantly <laughs> banging on the space bar and going, well, what? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. in Leopard anymore, so uh, yeah, that's that's my feature that I desperately yeah. miss. And that was a that was an interesting one for me because you know to start using Quick Look, you had to overcome years and years and years of double clicking, right? Yeah, because it's like, oh, it's a file. I wonder what this is. Double click. No, I have to press the space bar. So you're right. You go back to ten four, and you're like, this isn't doing anything. Yeah, and I use contextual menus for, uh, because I'd have uh, you know plugins that would allow me to use a contextual menu to see the contents of things. So I'm right clicking on files. Oh right, and going, oh wait, I don't have to do that now. I can just do this, and uh, <laughs> here I am. So um, let's let's back up a little bit and kind of do a little bit of a Leopard overview. And uh, we we know what all the major features of Leopard are. After the sort of late date of using this for a while, which of those do you find useful, and and which are sort of conceptually cool that you still don't use? Well, as I said, obviously in iChat, screen sharing with my relatives I use a lot. But even outside of iChat, I use the Finder's screen sharing all the time now. Is it it cuts down on the amount of running around I have to do from machine to machine here. Obviously we have, we have a few machines in the house and sometimes something's on the PowerBook or on the MacBook Pro or over on the mini. And, uh, before, like I said, I need have to set up all these VNC servers. Now it's just, I see it in the sidebar. I click on it as a screen share. It's like, Oh, there it is. Uh, there's a thing I wanted to look at. So that's been a great time saver. Um, I, I've actually used quick look a ton. Like I said, it's, you have to get used to it. And once you get used to it, you can't not get used to it. Yeah. Um, the the thing I, I I've had trouble adjusting to the changes in iCal. I I really miss the event drawer yeah. that made it very easy to see all your event information as you page through the calendar. I keep my calendar in month view so I can kind of get a big picture of what's mm-hmm. coming up. 
And it's just a pain to have to click on an event and hit Command E to uh, see that event detail and hit Command E again to make it go away or escape. So I'm I'm disappointed. I have not adjusted to iCal's new way of doing things yet. Um, Now, one I thought was going to be really cool was Spaces, and honestly, I'm not using it. Yeah, I use I, I use spaces for uh, exactly two things. I have I have the default four spaces set up, and in one space I have Photoshop because when I'm working on editing an image, I like kind of have that clean desktop look. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I have Photoshop running in its own space, and then as you mentioned, we do a lot of screenshots, and I use a program called Backdrop that sort of covers your desktop with either a pattern or a fixed color or an image. And um, I have a space that runs backdrop, so when I need to take a clean screenshot, I can go to my backdrop space, and I know that I want to have icons on the desktop, and I can drag a window in there if I need to take a shot of a window in a clean environment. Mm-hmm. But that's really all I've used it for. Uh, and I know there are people that run with like 16 spaces, and I just – my brain doesn't seem to work that way. <laughs> I, I can't – you know, if it's not a couple clicks away and, and visible, I kind of lose track of it, and I can't imagine having to navigate between 16 spaces to find all my stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I would say spaces has been conceptually very cool and the people that, that use it and rely on it. I mean, I met a guy at expo who showed me how he used his and it's amazing what he's got set up, but I looked at it and said, I could never do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think if I used my laptop as my primary machine, I would use spaces more often, but yes. my work machine has two monitors, so I have plenty of space. And so I can have multiple applications open, and actually I use DragThing to to hide things if I need to. So for that sort of thing, I don't need to change my work habits, but uh, because things do tend to get cluttered on my laptop, uh, I'm I'm more inclined to use Spaces there. Yeah, the uh, the other a couple of the other new things, Automator is is in general greatly improved, although it's a little more confusing to use. I've found because it has more features, but it is it is infinitely more powerful. I just haven't done as much with it as I thought I would by this point. Uh, and I think web clips in Dashboard and Safari, again, are conceptually really cool, but they have one glaring omission, uh, and you can't save them. Yeah, that's so, goofy. You know, you do all this work to set up this exactly perfect web clip, and then you accidentally hit the X, it's gone, you know? So I have not uh, used web clips as much for that reason, because I accidentally closed a couple of them that had taken me, you know, not a ton of time, but you really don't have to go through that again. So I'm not sure why they don't give us the ability to say, you know, save as my widget uh, to make it easier to get back to. Well, sure, because people are finding these things desirable. However, your screen gets all cluttered up with them. You know, if you do five or six of them, now your whole screen's taken up with these things and you want to put them away somewhere because I don't need to see this right now. Let me create a set of of widgets that I can pull up. But you're right. I mean, you you close it and you suddenly go, oh, well, that's just gone. It's poof. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess I'll just go and look in my web browser, which is what I did before. (laughs) Yeah. The – I found the new dictionary to be quite nice, especially mm-hmm. having Wikipedia right there yeah. um, is, is kind of handy. And I, I'm probably one of the things I haven't used very much. DVD player supposedly got a ton of very nice improvements. I, I haven't watched a movie on my Mac since Leopard shipped. So yeah. um, with the exception of watching a movie in iTunes, which doesn't use DVD players. So I, I'd hope at some point to uh, sit down and actually play with the new DVD player a bit. I've used it and it is very nice. But, but like you, I don't watch DVDs on my Mac. Yep. So, uh, you know, nice that they made these improvements, but but given how little support Apple is giving to um, physical disks, you know, removable yeah. <laughs> media, now it seems sort of like, oh, well, that that's about, uh, you know, two years late. But uh, yeah. nice that they did the work, I suppose. 
And the uh, the only other thing I'll probably comment on is that um, I have not used, and judging the email I received from others, not many others have used, and I'm thankful for this, is the stationary feature in mail. Yeah. Um, I have not gotten any large, overbearing, image-laden, colorful 400-kilobyte emails from my friends using the new stationary effects in mail. So, you know, they're, they're beautiful, but I, I guess I'm old school. You know, to me, email is meant to be short and sweet and to the point. And if you want to do something fancy, that's that's not the spot for it. Uh, but I know people, again, that love them. They are very well designed, but uh, that's certainly one of the features like, wow, it looks pretty, but I will never use it. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's a comment on the kind of people that we email because, like you, I have never received – uh, email created with stationary and I'm glad, but, yeah. uh, you know, and, and maybe that's not, you know, maybe that's a feature for, for my mother or my, you know, my brother or somebody like that, who's not sort of, uh, steeped in this tradition of keep it simple. Don't put a bunch of stuff in there, make it legible. And, uh, and those who don't feel that way and want to make it pretty are doing that unbeknownst to us. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Anything else? Um, I think preview is probably one of the hidden gems in ten mm-hmm. five. They added a ton of stuff, and uh, you can now like you can easily move pages between PDFs as long as the PDFs are not protected, obviously. Right. So it's pretty cool to open a couple PDFs and drag a page back and forth, and um, you can actually trash images from the sidebar now, where before you could just drag them out of the sidebar and they would go poof, but they wouldn't actually go anywhere. Right. Um, there's some better annotation options that we use in, in our work, obviously. So preview preview's got some nice improvements. And then uh, my big winner is probably just despite the issues with it in the finder that I talked about earlier, spotlight, um, they pretty much fixed everything I disliked about it in 10 four, yeah. you know, you can search for phrases, you can do Boolean searches. They made it easier to search by file name. Um, you can search inside system files. It's actually a really good application launcher. I mean, it gives Butler and LaunchBar a run for its money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I personally love the ability to search by phrase. I use that every day. Yeah, I, it is useful. And, and that's another thing where you go back to Tiger and you make the mistake of using Spotlight there. And then, go, oh, <laughs> no, no, 7,000 hits. And, and I'm looking <laughs> yeah. for one file. And, no, this doesn't work as it as it should have. You know, I'd say, you know, as, as overall basis, when we were sort of testing the developers' builds, um, I wasn't thrilled necessarily about moving to 10.5. Yeah. Um, I thought it looked like a decent upgrade, but I thought 10.4 was a pretty darn good program as it stood. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with the changes, especially in 10.5.2 and the fact that they've done so many of these basic things right in 10.5, I don't like going back to 10.4. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good place to wrap up that, that now this is the 10.5 that we've, we've been waiting for. It would have been a nice if it came out the first day, but it didn't. Uh, but now for the people who've been holding out, this seems like a, a reasonable thing to do. I would completely agree. Great. Well, thanks. And we'll end on that note of agreement. And uh, thanks very much, Rob, for joining me. Thank you, Chris. And finally, the Apple TV Take-Two update and 32 gigabyte iPod. I'm afraid that as I both host this podcast and took the lead on covering these products for Macworld, I'm once again in the precarious predicament of having to swap my interviewer's hat for the interviewee's chapeau. Fortunately, the guy who works the local drag strip happened by my office just as I was getting ready to record this interview. And so, without further ado... Tuesday, 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 Apple ships a totally awesome Apple TV Take-Two update. What do you think? So far, I've only had it a day or so to play with. 
But at this point, I have to say I'm pretty impressed. The update went really smoothly. It took about 10 minutes to download over an 802.11n connection. And then maybe it took another 10 minutes to install the update. And it totally blows away the old Apple TV. Well, it's really the same Apple TV hardware it ever was. Obviously, the software doesn't change the physical characteristics of the Apple TV, though a couple of features are now switched on. For example, you can now scale content up to 1080p video on your HDTV. In the past, you could choose 720p or 1080i and a few other lesser settings. And although the Apple TV with the old software could conceivably play 5.1 surround sound, only a very specific kind of surround sound worked with the Apple TV to the point where Apple said that surround sound simply wasn't supported. Now the Apple TV passes Dolby Digital 5.1 through the box. And it presents an interface that, yeah, is easier to get around on, and it allows you to rent movies from the iTunes store, as well as purchase TV shows and music directly on the Apple TV. So unlike in the past, you don't need a computer running iTunes to do this kind of thing. Rockin'! Mostly, yeah. Depending on how fast your connection is to the Internet, you may have to plan ahead to watch rented HD movies. For example, over my 802.11 connection, I was able to start watching an HD movie after it had downloaded for about 12 minutes. On the other hand, I purchased an episode from the current season of Lost, and I was able to start playing it in under a minute. Music and podcasts download very quickly as well. This is the kind of no-holds-barred action you've been waiting for. No, I think it's more than that. I do think it's a huge step in the right direction in regard to video on demand. Granted, the rental selection is still under the 1,000 movies that Apple promised by the end of February. Currently, there are about 375 movies for rent from the store. But I can't help but think that if this catches on, movie studios will fall all over themselves to make their back catalogs available. Awesome! Yeah, there are some pretty awesome things in here. Putting the rental and purchase stuff aside for the moment, it's really nice to be able to stream .Mac web galleries and Flickr pictures to your Apple TV. YouTube is still a great feature, and I'm still impressed by how well media streams across a wireless G or N network from a computer in your house to the Apple TV in another room. And it's great that the Apple TV now supports 1080p video, even though it has to upscale it. And there's the nice bonus that the Apple TV now acts as an AirTunes device. And by that I mean you can select it in iTunes and stream the contents of your iTunes library to it, just as you can with an Airport Express base station. Totally freaking awesome! Well, not totally. For example, you can't subscribe to TV shows or podcasts on the Apple TV. And I kind of understand the reasoning. You don't want to fill up the Apple TV's hard drive as you could by subscribing to a bunch of HD video podcasts and then forgetting that you've done it. And yeah, you can add TV shows and podcasts as favorites so that you can easily get to them on the iTunes store when you want. But still, there are going to be some people who will miss the ability to subscribe to things directly on the Apple TV. All right, and the 32-gigabyte iPod Touch kicks sweet boot. Hey! It's nice, yeah. 32 gigabytes puts you in a comfortable position in regard to storing a reasonable amount of media on your iPod. If you have a lot of media and you don't need the iPod Touch's big screen or the newfound Internet communication features, the iPod Classic still may be a better choice as it's got a ton of storage. Oh, but Daddy wants that rockin' pim in his pocket. Okay, if you want that rockin' pim in your pocket, you can now have it. A lot of people thought the iPod Touch was hobbled in ways that it needn't have been. You couldn't add or edit calendar events, and it seemed a little odd that it didn't have a notes application when both the iPhone and other iPods did. But that's all history now. 
other than the built-in speaker, Bluetooth, and of course the phone stuff, the iPod Touch is pretty much that phoneless iPhone that some people had been hoping for. Now, at $500, it's not cheap, but it's a remarkably capable device that's only going to get better as Apple offers third-party applications for it in the near future. Rock on! Uh, thanks. Uh, I will. You too. Um, I'll see you later. Sunday! 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 Um, I'm busy then. Tell you what, I'll call you. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. I'd like to thank Ben Long, Rob Griffiths, the Drag Strip Guy, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at Macworld.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.